I hope that you're able to sing that song with just an incredible degree of confidence. He's a good, good father. Amen? And you're loved by him. You're a good, good father, and you love me intimately. Whether you're here in the auditorium or you're watching online right now, I want you to be dialed into Romans 7 because of where we're going to remind us of just how amazingly good he is. So my Bible's open to Romans 7. I'm going to ask you to go there if you have your Bible with you this morning. If you don't own one, there's free Bibles in the back. Um, When you leave this morning, grab one. Take one with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. It's on that brown table in the back. But in the racks around you are Bibles. You can pick it up there or you can watch on the screen. Maybe that'll help you follow along. So I'm going to pray with you first, and I'm going to ask you to do something unique for me because we're going to, we're going to link Romans chapter 7 with an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 6. If you're not familiar with the Bible, just go to the index in the beginning of the Bible. Find the book of Isaiah, make your way to chapter 6. You'll also see the words on the screen, but you're going to want to link those two this morning for a very specific reason. But let's pray together first, and then we'll take a look at the passages. Father, we've worshipped you in word and uh, song, and, and now we're about to worship you through your own word. We come before you with um, true confessions. If we were to be honest with ourselves, we've done things this week that would displease you. There's things that our eyes have looked at we shouldn't look at. There's things that our hands have done we shouldn't have done. There's things that we've said we just shouldn't have said. And there's things that our minds have thought of that just wouldn't please you. And we recognize all those things can be distractions from hearing you clearly. So we'd like to leave that behind. And we ask right now that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you'd remove all that baggage from us and that you would focus us. So I pray for us, God, that you would focus our eyes and our hearts and our minds, even the things that we'll say about you that you would use all of this today to make us more into the likeness of Jesus. We ask for that in his name, and God's people said, amen. Amen. Scripture says very, very clearly in the Bible that without justification, nobody gets to stand before God. Without justification, maybe you're not familiar with that word, and essentially what that statement means is that Without being made like God, nobody gets to stand in his presence without being God-like. So a lot of people try and make themselves like God. Uh, If you're not convinced that that's what God really meant, I'm going to show you what God said when he was here on earth. Jesus, God the Son, said it this way. In in John 3.3, he said, "Um, truly, truly, I say to you, now that's just Jesus' way of saying, pay attention. That's why they said truly, truly, to get somebody's attention. So pay attention unless one is born again, meaning anew, meaning from above, can't see the kingdom of God. You might be familiar with that passage in John 3, so if you are, you remember the follow-up question. Jesus is talking to a man who is a teacher of the law. His name is Nicodemus. 
And he's asking Jesus, how do I get into heaven? How do I stand before God? And Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't. So his response was this, what? How? How does that work? How is that possible? Well, Jesus went on to tell him that this is how it works in John 3. You can read about it later. But we find in the book of Corinthians probably the most concise answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, meaning belonging to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. That's what you find Paul doing in Romans chapter 7. He's essentially, he's helping us to understand how can we stand before God. Explicitly, what he's doing is showing us what it means to be justified and why you need to be justified. Now, if that word has escaped you, I'm going to put the, the Greek word for it up on the screen so you see the definition. I did it last week. I'm going to do it one more time so that it really stays with you. What is he talking about? He's talking about being made righteous. Rendered innocent. So my question for you this morning is this. Who is your justifier? Who makes you righteous? Are you making yourself acceptable? Do you believe that you can make it there on your own? Or do you believe that you need a justifier? See, there's only two choices. According to God's word, those are it. You either believe that you can make it on your own, or you need a justifier. And depending on where you land at this morning, you may be thinking you can make yourself acceptable before God if you're good enough. So my question is, how good do you have to be to stand before a holy God? How many good things do you have to do to stand in the presence of the one who created everything? and who doesn't know any sin. Would you have to be as good as an author of the Bible? Would you have to be as good as a prophet? I had a reason for taking you to Isaiah 6 this morning, so I'm going to ask you to go there with me, maybe in your own Bible or you can watch on the screen. But it seems like if anybody is going to be good with God, it's going to be one of the authors of the Bible, right? Okay, so let's watch Isaiah. He's both a prophet and he's an author, and we find him in God's presence in Isaiah chapter 6. And in verse 1, he says this, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, verse 2, and if you don't know what those are, those are angels. Highest order, glowing orange flying through the atmosphere around God. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and still speaking of angels, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah feels it and sees it and understands he's in the presence of God. And his response is visceral. I call it a conscious comprehension of reality because in verse 5, you find his response for what he sees. He says, then I said, 
Woe is me, for I am ruined. He literally means destroyed. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Are you noticing that just, just the words of his mouth are enough to condemn him? He's not even going there on the things that he's done, the things that his hands have touched, the things that his eyes have seen. He says, just my mouth and the people I live among, they're like that too. So Isaiah is in the very presence of God and immediately the overwhelming sense is that he knows I'm about to be consumed because I'm unclean. And he's an author of the Bible. So would you have to be as good as an author of the Bible? Would that get you in? Would you be good with God? See, he's very aware that the dirtiest part of him is his tongue. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the tongue is just revealing what's going on inside, right? The awareness of God's holiness increases the more you mature in your walk with Christ. And the more you are aware of God's holiness, the more it increases, the more your sensitivity to sin increases. That's what you find going on with Paul. His holiness gauge is pinning into the red zone. He's very aware. He's increasingly sensitive to his own failure and how far short he is falling from the glory of God. His life has demonstrated to him even the good he longs to do. He finds sin rearing its ugly head in the midst of it. So we found him last week where we ended in verse 24 by saying, wretched man that I am. Go with me to Romans 7 now and look at verse 24 and see the cry of this guy. I know we spent a lot of time last week in the final nine verses, but I told you we needed to come back to verse 24 and 25 to really get into the nutshell of what's going on here. Wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death. This is pretty forceful language. And if you're new to the Bible, you're thinking, this guy, Paul, it looks like he has an inferiority complex. What's going on with him? There's a lot packed into this sentence. We addressed last week the the reason why he calls himself wretched, and it is not because he has an inferiority complex. He's making it abundantly clear the power of sin on this planet, the power of sin continues to show itself in the battle of our fleshness, we called it, the battle of the flesh, and the conflict is really, really clear in Romans 7. If you want to see it boiled down into a nutshell, just look with me at Galatians 5, one sentence up on the screen. Galatians 5, 17, for the sinful desires, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. See, if you're a believer in Jesus, you understand this, the more we advance spiritually, the more clearly we see God's holiness. And the more clearly we see God's holiness, the more we deplore our own shortcoming. So after more than 30 years of walking with Jesus in my life, I've come to a conclusion, and it's taken me a long time to arrive at this, and I understand it much more clearly after spending all this time with you in Romans. We 
take our status as being saved by grace for granted to the degree that we will refuse ourselves to allow ourselves to be disturbed by our sin. Because I'm good with God. I'm saved by grace. Praise Jesus. I'm destined for eternity. But forgetting, there's a battle of the flesh going on here. And that's what you're watching in Paul's situation. He's saying, stop refusing to allow yourself to be disturbed. Quickly remember that there's a wretchedness about us. I am personally, I'll just out myself, I'm quickly uh, very able to remember my spiritual victories. How about you, right? Man, I spent time in devotions, yes. I went to church last week, yes. You know, we'll pat ourselves on the back really, really quickly and gloss over our failures. And that's a problem when you're saved by grace. Grace is a great thing, amen, church? I mean, I'm complimenting. But the sensitivity to sin needs to increase because it is a prerequisite to spiritual depth. You want to grow in Christ? Be much more alert to the reality of what this battle of the flesh is doing. Now, if you're thinking, wow, Mark, this is pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, it is, but it gets brighter, I promise you. It's going to get brighter because you're going to find without any hesitation whatsoever, Paul begins speaking immediately of an eventual rescue. I want you to go to the last part of verse 24 with me. When he says, wretched man that I am, watch the last part. Who will set me free? Break down the last half of that sentence with me. He is already a believer. It's a historical fact Paul has already confessed Jesus as his Savior and Lord, yet, do you notice he's speaking of a future freedom? That word will is really important to me. There's something future about that word will. So let's go first with the phrase set free. What's he talking about here? He's already a believer. Well, this phrase, set free, has the meaning deliver behind it. It's a basic idea of being rescued. And here's your second and last Greek word for today. It's this word, rehuamai. And I really want you to get this down. So as you read the definition, maybe you have your notes open this morning, you've already read it in advance. It's not just talking about the rescue. It's talking about the one who makes the rescue possible. To rush to someone. Someone who's in imminent and severe, acute danger. So Paul's using that phrase that way. Who will rescue me? Who will rehuamai me? Bring me out of severe danger. This phrase is a military term. It's borrowed from the Roman legions. When men went to battle and they found a fallen comrade on the other side of the front line, meaning in enemy territory, perhaps most of the platoon made it safely back into safe territory, but they would hear the cry of a fallen brother, and they would turn to each other and say, who's going to be his Rahumai? Who's going to rush to him? One soldier rushing to another soldier to drag him out of the battle zone into the safety zone bringing him back to a place where he's protected. See, Rehuamai, if it's properly used, what it emphasizes is the greatness of the peril and, and the degree from which the deliverance needs to be given by a mighty act of power. 
Uh, let me give you a contrary example to that. Perhaps this will help you put it in context. So I'll give you a good example later and a contrary example. It's no secret, especially to the women in my world, my daughters and my wife, that I do not like shopping too much, right? And occasionally I have to go. Because if you're going to function in this world, you're going to be part of anniversaries and birthdays, you got to go shopping, right? And, and occasionally you do need clothes, but I'll typically say to Lori, well, you know my size, can't you bring stuff home to me? And she'll say, well, there's fitting rooms for a reason. you got to try things on. Okay, so eventually I find myself in a shopping mall. I don't want to be. Now, if I'm in the midst of a shopping mall and she's had me there for what seems like an eternity, I might cry out, who will save me from the body of this death? Right? And it, it kind of lacks something. True? It, it, because there's no peril involved. Okay? There's no danger so I can't say like Paul, who will set me free from the body of this death because my outcry is really lacking. So I might turn looking for an electronics store. Isn't there a big screen TV here someplace? Lori has no mercy on me. So I understand what's going on with Paul when he uses this phrase because Rahu am I. It's always linked with God as the deliverer. And God putting his focus on a person who is in great peril. So here's a good example of that. Lee Osman is a, a wing walker, and he appeared at an air show in Hollabro, Oregon, a couple years ago. 40,000 people gathered for this air show. And they mostly wanted to see the jets that were going to perform at the end of the air show, but a lot of people were there to see the wing walker. And Lee is out on the wing of a biplane at 2,000 feet when suddenly the plane takes an unexpected twist and Lee falls off the wing of the plane. Now, he fortunately has a nylon safety cord that's holding him, but he finds himself dangling 100, 150 feet on this cord underneath the plane. And, and, the, and the, to the pilot's horror, what are you going to do when you've got a man hanging from the bottom of your plane? You can't land. Now, the 40,000 people who've gathered for the air show, they're like, wow, this is good, because they don't know it's not part of the air show. Until 20 minutes go by, and they watch this plane continually circling the airport. And then they realize something has horribly gone wrong. What do we do? Very quick-thinking individuals jumped into a pickup truck and drove out to the runway and began speeding up and down the runway, back and forth, and the pilot got the idea. He didn't have any radio. He couldn't communicate. It's just an old barnstorming biplane. He could not tell them what to do, and he picked up on what they were doing. They wanted to match his airspeed. If he could slow down enough, perhaps he could lower Lee down enough where they could grab him. So he matched the speed of the plane to the truck on the runway, and they missed him the first time. And then they tried again, and they snatched, and they miss him. And eventually, the pilot slowed down enough so that they could reach and grab Lee, and another man grabbed his cord and sliced the nylon cord and dropped him into the bed of the truck safely. They were his Rahuamai, his deliverer. He's in great peril, and he needed to be rescued. I want you to think about how often this word is used throughout the Bible. It's littered throughout the book of Psalms, but we find it especially in the New Testament, always used of God. So here's this easy example for you. Even if you're not a church person, you've heard this before. 
the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, would you teach us how to pray like John's disciples? Because we've noticed they're really good. Will you show us how to do that? Jesus said, when you pray, I want you to do it this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You know the prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer, right? Okay, by the time you get to the end of it, and I want you to finish this, it goes like this. Lead us not into temptation, but... Yeah. Rahu am I. Rahu am I us from evil, God. Because there's this potential of this evilness that we live in and this temptation that's on either side of us. God, Rahu am I, us, deliver us from the evil temptation that comes our way. Paul is longing for the day when he will be rescued. God, who will deliver me from the body of this death? It hangs on me like a corpse, and it's constantly interfering with my desire to obey the new nature. You said I'm a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Why don't I always feel like it? I've got this body of death hanging around me. How does Paul use that phrase? Who will free me from the body of this death? It might interest you to know that Paul lived in an area called Tarsus, what is modern-day Syria today. And in Tarsus was a small kingdom that was continuing to operate. Even though Rome was the dictator, the king still had the ability to operate within his realm as long as he behaved himself. And so he had a small tribe. And within his tribe, he carried out the most brutal death sentences for criminals. In order to maintain peace among his people, he decided that the way to get the attention of individuals to not carry out murder or capital offenses would be to inflict the most severe punishment he could think of. So if murder occurred within his people, he would take the dead body of the person who had been murdered and lash it to the body of the murderer. The victim was attached and tied to the person who had killed them. Days would go by. And, and I'm sure what seemed like an eternity in a period of only three days, the person would be dead. Why? Because as that body began to rot and decay, the infection from it would set in to the individual who had murdered them. And the capital punishment would be complete, and it was known as the body of death. And Paul cries out, who will free me from this agonizing corpse that's hanging on me, this body of death that's strapped to me and it's infuriating me and I'm unable to break free from it. I know, like myself, if you're just alive in this world, you're aware of all the news headlines. And every month, it seems to be some new crisis, some new trauma going on. And, and I watch the various events around the world with excruciating pain because we live in a world that doesn't know what it means to live a life pleasing to God. They're chasing after their own version of peace, and it, it's agonizing as a God person to watch it. Yet, as hard as it is to watch the sin around us, here's what Romans 7 is doing to me. Romans 7 is challenging me to recognize 
the dead body that's still attached to Mark Kring. This dead body of flesh. Even though my soul is redeemed and destined for eternity, this fleshness that we battle against. That's why Jesus said, don't be doing eye surgery on somebody else if you still got a log in your own eye because you're just going to screw them up. Get it out of your own eye first. This dead body of flesh hangs to us. Now, if, if you're waiting for the brighter part, and you said, Mark, there's going to be a brighter part. I haven't heard it yet. Here's the brighter part. There's this brighter part coming. Get your amens ready. As frustrating as this struggle with sin is, our predicament on earth is only temporary, right? It is because there's an eternal glory waiting for us in heaven, the likes of which God said, don't even go there mentally because you can't. You can't begin to imagine the things I have in store for you. Our earthly predicament is only temporary. In the month of September, we're going to finally make it into chapter 8. Had no idea it was going to take us 43 weeks to get here, but it did, okay? So it, later, we're going to make it to verse 18, but here's a teaser in advance of that. Look with me at verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Ah, that's good, isn't it? It's not worthy of it. Yeah, we battle against this stuff all the time. We watch the headlines. We hate what's going on. We're aware of where our eyes go, what our hands do, what our mouths say. But it's temporary. So that takes us to Paul's statement again. Who will set me free? See, he's already a believer. He's already forgiven in Jesus He's there, so he must be speaking of something future. So the word will is used. It's future tense. Are you picking up on that? There is something in our circumstances that are going to change, and they're going to change in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You know where I'm going with this, right? You know what Scripture promises? That in a heartbeat, Paul speaks of something that's going to completely reverse. So he says, who will set me free? And he answers his own question. There is only one who is able to be your Rahuamai. There's only one who's able to rescue. So in the same breath that he asks the question without hesitation, Paul begins speaking in verse 25 of the rescuer. Go with me to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul answers with a victory. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. The victory is God's, and he gives it through Jesus, the Lord Christ. Thank you. He's my justifier. Are you trying to justify yourself today, or do you need a justifier? You're seeing authors of the Bible saying, I need a justifier because I can't get there on my own. I need to be rescued. Years ago, two boat captains were passing each other on the Mississippi River. One old gentleman's riding on the deck of one of the boats. As he sees another boat approaching, he says to a complete stranger, Yonder, there's the captain. When asked to explain by the passenger who didn't know him, he says, Why would you call out the captain? 
And he says, I, I want you to look yonder and see him because years ago, we, we was going down this river and I was but a young man and I was a fall into this muddy water. And that captain there, that captain, he sees me and he just reaches out and he pulls me on to the deck of his boat and he rescued me. Since then, I always like to point out the captain. I thank him. Do you, do you thank God for Jesus? That's what Paul's doing here. Jesus rescued us. I just loves to point him out. When we became believers, Jesus delivered us from the body of the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom. But we're still here on this planet looking for the day when we will be delivered. So Paul says, thank God there's deliverance in Jesus, and it comes through him because of God. Why does he point that out? Because Jesus is the only way you can stand before God. He's the only way. The assurance of your destiny is wonderful, but it's just a down payment it's only the first installment of greater things. So you get this taste here on earth. You can kind of taste it. You can kind of see it, but it hasn't quite entered into your mind all that's waiting in store for you. So Paul says, as a result, we groan. Here's another teaser from chapter 8. Look with me on the screen. Verse 23, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And on that awesome day, the corrupted will put on the incorruptible and the perishable will put on the imperishable and we will be changed, right? Look at what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So you come to the last part of verse 25? Paul just summarized it. He says in one sentence, what has taken me since the end of June to get through with you guys. He sums it up in one statement. Watch verse 25. So then, on one hand, I find myself, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. But on the other, with my mind, with my flesh, the law of sin. This, this is what it all adds up to. Me, myself, who I really am in Jesus, I am committed. Paul's saying this just like you. You are committed to following Jesus. You're a believer in Jesus. With my mind, I'm committed to following the law of God. But my lower nature, it still clings to me. And my lower nature, it still draws me to sin. So there's this tension going on, this tension which never ceases as long as we're on this planet. Just like you, there is in Paul that which chases after God. And there is in Paul that which also follows sin. Can you identify with Paul this morning? You, you, you understanding why he's writing the way he's writing? And the reality of these truths are driving him to shout, praise God for Jesus. Praise 
God for a redeemer. Because even when I'm good, I'm not that good. That could be a line in a country song, right? I'm just saying. You ought to write that down. Because even when I'm good, I'm not that good. That's Paul's point here. Thanks be to God. How good might you have to be to stand in the presence of a holy God? Would you have to be as good as an author of the Bible? Would that get you in? What if you were a prophet? Would, would that do it? Would you be in with God? Isaiah is in God's presence in chapter 6 and verse 1. Even if you have your Bibles open, just watch this on the screen. Feel the emotion of what Isaiah has said. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. I see angels, and they're glowing orange. And I hear them crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I watch as smoke fills the temple, and I feel the ground under me begin to shake, and I recognize I don't belong here. I can't stand in his presence. So verse 5 records, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God, I see God, and I have seen things I shouldn't have seen. My mouth has said things I should have never said. My heart has desired things I should have never desired. And I live among people who kill babies. And we run over people with cars. And the wars, the wars, the horrible things we have done to each other. God, I don't belong here. I'm going to be destroyed eternally. I can't exist in your presence. And what you didn't see is verse 6. Watch verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altars with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. God had to take action. Because even an author of the Bible, even a prophet, can not stand in the presence of God, unless God has taken away your sin. He is your justifier. He is your Rahuamai. God has.
has to make you acceptable. I hope that you found in these 43 weeks of chapters 1 through 7 that an amazing truth has been exposed. Only Jesus delivers. He's the who am I? Only He can forgive, right, your sin and allow you to stand before God. So tell me, good teacher, how does a one get eternal life? Well, truly, truly, pay attention, teacher of the law. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How is this possible? Well, in Christ, in Christ you're made a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, new things have come. This sets us up really well for chapter 8. Paul has taken from chapters 1 through 7 to lay the groundwork for why we need a Rehuamai. But I can't go to chapter 8 with you yet because God has laid something pretty heavy on my heart. And so next week, I'm going to ask you to begin thinking right now, who comes to your mind that you know needs to understand what it means to stand before God with God providing the deliverance? Who do you know that doesn't know God? Because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all of chapters 1 through 7, and we're going to compress it down and do a complete review next week of that. I know. Pray for me. All right? It's, it's taken 43 weeks. And yet, God knows that there's people coming into Lansing this week. There's students arriving on campus. There's people who are moving here from other communities. There's people who are not church people who show up at New Hope. And they need to hear this stuff. So I'm asking you for two things. I'm asking you to pray who you might bring with you next week. And I'm asking you to pray for the people who will be here. Because I intend to bring it. God willing. Okay. I'm going to pray for you right now that God would do for us specifically a, a gift, a, a, a gift of memory that we would remember what we've learned this morning. Would you join me in that? Father, where our eyes have wandered and our hands have done and our heart has longed for things other than you. I thank you for taking that and removing it. That we have known forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of removing it, Father, you have centered us and allowed us to hear from you clearly. So I pray, Father, that with the sharpness of our focus and with the attention we've given this, that to that degree you would return back to us the favor of helping us to remember. As we talk about you, even as we go to the picnic this afternoon, God, that we would speak things that would please you. Use us as an instrument in the lives of others this week. 
And Father, that will happen even more effectively when you bring to mind the things that we've learned. So we ask in a supernatural way, bring it to light. I end by echoing what we sang, Father, earlier. You are a good, good Father. And we are loved by you. And we praise you in the name of the one who poured out himself and showed so much love for us that he died on the cross. It's in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.